for all Bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. One of the top leftist feminist comedy podcasts in the country, actually. <laughs> One of the premiere. Um, I am Julia Clare. I am Kate Willett. Uh, Kate, how are you doing? I'm doing good. You remember when I did that survey a while ago mm-hmm. where I put an application on the internet to get to know me? Mm-hmm. It worked. Now I, I have a, a, a boyfriend, I think. I think you officially have a boyfriend. I don't I d- think it's. I, do. I don't think it's a matter of debate. Yeah, I, d- I d- uh, yeah, I do. I do officially have a boyfriend. Um, it's really funny that this works. That this. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You did it. I you- did it. I'm dating. I'm dating um, an online reply guy. That's. We should not let this message get out to the rest of the reply guys, though, because you just you don't want people to think that this stuff works. I did open up a situation in which you invited you invited the invited the replies. But yeah, but a a funny thing that's been happening so far is, um, you know, all of my previous relationships have uh, been torn apart by another man. And that man's name is is Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Um, And. You know, I think over the course of time, um, I, I have, you know, had a lot of a uh, lot of arguing with with partners and people I was dating about Bernie. And usually I was not the leftist bro in the relationship. But, you know, the thing is, is uh, I think as my my politics have moved further to the left, it is it's become clear that um, in this relationship, I am the leftist bro. He is also a leftist, but um, I, I am. You know, he was telling me that he didn't know if uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren was better. And I said, what? And he said, is this like an issue in our relationship? And I said, of course it is. Um, And he said that that was, you know, a a bit fanatical. And uh, I mean, he's certainly probably right about that. But (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, I just I just feel I feel strongly that each relationship needs one leftist bro. But otherwise, you know, I just it is it is kind of funny that that survey worked. (laughs) It's a good story of online. It's an inspiration (laughs) to us all. Um, I I gotta say, and maybe it's just because I'm like hungry right now and I've, we've been recording all day and I, but I'm just like really upset right now and I want to talk about it. Um, my reply guys of the week, I gotta, I gotta get this out. Get it out, Julia. My reply guys of the week are my, my real life reply guys. Uh, and they are from the Yang Gang. Oh Um, my God. Are you, are you a victim of Yang Gang violence? I sure am. And... I think that they, I mean, because personally, because I, I also don't tweet a lot about Kamala. I don't really care to. I think everyone knows that she's a cop, that she's a cop. Um, the thing that I don't like about Andrew Yang is that he is a libertarian in progressive clothes and I, um, no tie, you know? Yeah. And 
he's fooling people who might otherwise be people who would like vote for Bernie. They hear UBI, they hear universal basic income. That sounds like a, a socialist utopia is, is universal basic income. So, you know, the reason why I got so upset about this was because I was tweeting yesterday about how, um, about my mom and my mom is a nurse, but, and she has been for about like 12, 13 years now. But when I was a kid, she worked at Macy's um, she worked retail and I was, you know, just tweeting about like how proud I am of her and how like, she's truly like the hardest working person I know. She, you know, went back to school twice first to become a medical assistant and then a nurse in her forties and then in her fifties. And it's just like very inspiring. She's super hardworking. And the response that I got from the Yang gang, uh, I, I got this, this one thing really set off everything in particular. This guy who said the average retail clerk is a 39 year old woman making between nine and $10 an hour at Andrew Yang has talked about how their jobs are in danger due to the onset of automation. His solution, $1,000 a month to every American over 18. Thanks for sharing your story. And I said, I replied to him and I said, a $15 an hour minimum wage, Medicare for all universal childcare would have been things that would have helped her. Um, and I was like, don't use my mom's story to boost your, like the candidacy of this like libertarian nightmare. This is what I, I get really upset about. And I was tweeting about a lot about him today and his follower, even though I didn't name him, his followers found it. I I saw that you didn't even like. You wouldn't spell out his name. No, you I didn't. Put, like, an I put the asterisk in so, so, because the Yang specifically because they name search him, right? They name search him all the time. Um, I find that he, you know, a lot of lot of blue hats in my mentions right now. And what they don't understand is that the way that Andrew Yang has proposed universal basic income is as a replacement to existing social safety net programs. Yep. This is from his website directly in the FAQ about universal basic income. Current spending. We currently spend between 500 and $600 billion a year on welfare programs, food stamps, disability, and the like. This reduces the cost of the freedom dividend because people already receiving benefits would have a choice between keeping their current benefits and the $1,000 and would not receive both. Fuck off forever if you say that it is a supplementary program. It's not. It is literally only, like the only people that this would help would be middle and upper middle class and above people. This would not help poor people. This is a like Mark Zuckerberg, Silicon Valley solution to a problem in that it's not a real solution. I really, it got, I just get so mad because I, I have so many people in my mentions about him who don't understand their own candidate. Yeah. And he is counting on people not understanding the fine print of this, which is like, this is not a progressive thing. Andrew Yang is a libertarian. It offends me that he is even running as a Democrat. His other, some of his other campaign proposals are like making immigrants work for their citizenship. And it's like all of this fucking Silicon Valley garbage. I don't like, I wouldn't vote for Jeff Bezos. I'm not going to vote for Andrew Yang. They're the same. They're cut from the same cloth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, I've been walking around Brooklyn. Um, sometimes the comedy shows, I will do this thing where I like ask people which presidential candidate they support. And I see if I can guess based on their clothes, which, you know, is like uh, it's never good to make uh, generalizations about people based on what they look like. But that's a fun one. And a lot of the people that I thought were going to be for Bernie, like the guys in uh, flannels and beanies, they are actually in the Yang gang. And it's very upsetting. It's really upsetting. And the thing that offends me so much is that Andrew Yang is touting himself as a progressive fun fact he's also making a pitch to libertarians because he wants to you know get the the disaffected gary johnson voter too his version of universal basic income is something that the cato institute supports that's the think tank founded by the Koch brothers this is libertarian garbage i just it offends me that people that he's tricked people who would otherwise be voting for like a Bernie or maybe a Liz Warren. Somebody was like, you don't understand what he's saying. You should listen to when he went on the Joe Rogan podcast (laughs) for him to explain it. It's like, I'm absolutely never going to do that. I did listen to Bernie's episode of Joe Rogan and I I loved it. I'll tell you why, because Bernie was like, I might have talked about this before, but like Bernie was like so patient with Joe Rogan. It was so funny because Joe Rogan was like, wait, so you're telling me that there's these people who have billions of dollars and then they spend some of that money to pay for politicians campaigns to buy the outcomes that they want. That's pretty fucked up. And then Bernie Sanders was like, well. That is pretty messed up, Joe. He's like, why did they do that? He's like, well, that's a very good question, Joe. I know you just saw this very like us. He did the same thing with John Favreau. Yeah, it was on- a very soft and yeah. adorable <laughs> side of Bernie. I just like it was like it was like getting Bernie to see Bernie like uh, interact with like a four or five year old. And it was like really cute. But I, I didn't like it for Joe. Uh, I liked it for Bernie, even though. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't feel compelled to like. Uh, I don't feel like I know enough about Joe Rogan to to comment or not, but um, just, it was adorable. All right. The, the Yang Gang is officially our reply guys for the week. Uh, so Tuesday was election day. Um, we have seen, uh, you know, some um, some cool results all over the country. We're going to talk with NATO Green in a little while about um, some cool things that happened in San Francisco politics. But um, something cool that happened is that uh, Shama Sawant in Seattle, who is the only socialist member of the Seattle City Council, uh, won, declared victory in her re-election race. Um, this was really... Um, yeah, she so Amazon, uh, our favorite, headed by uh, <laughs> Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos, uh, short king Jeff Bezos. We don't actually know how tall he is. Uh, I do. It's five seven. It's five seven. Oh my god! No, you, you this tweeted is, that. I tweeted that because um, Mark Zuckerberg is five seven. Jeff Bezos is five seven. Joe Rogan is five seven. Uh, Benito Mussolini is five seven. So yes, yeah, so there's Jeff a conspiracy. Bezos. So Shama Sawant was running on uh, taxing Amazon, um, getting them to pay their fair share of taxes because you know how much they pay uh, is zero, zero. right now. <laughs> um, and uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon poured one point five million dollars into this race to defeat her, um, backing a. Uh, a uh, an opponent of hers she's she's held the the seat for a long time she is the um she's the incumbent and uh they uh amazon uh basically threw a bunch of money um into the race hoping that they would defeat her and it's you know it's just so fucked up because it's like 
you know, Amazon's like paying zero dollars and they would rather spend all this money to defeat someone who is saying they should be taxed versus like just, you know, paying some taxes. I know. Um, and it's like, you know, Seattle is one of those cities like San Francisco, which we're going to talk about later, which like does have a very rich progressive history, but is also um, being very rapidly gentrified and being very, uh, you know, taken over by big um, tech by big tech. Yeah. The housing prices are getting really, really expensive. They've had these like little, um, yeah, it's kind of like future dystopia where they've like built out like, uh, some little pods for people to oh. live in and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's cool that she won in the end. It, it didn't really look like she was going to, um, when the first vote was, uh, when the first election results were released on Tuesday, um, she was trailing um, the her Amazon back challenger uh, Egan Orion by eight percentage points, um, and then you know it turns out as of today, um, when we're recording, she won. You know, and like it's just. It's it encouraging. Is, it's encouraging that there yeah. can be like actual that someone that can stop can the machine. Yeah. yeah, I mean. To what extent, you know, I don't know, but it's we're very glad to see her when we stand. Yeah, we stand. And, you know, I, I think after like Citizens United was passed, it felt like it just felt like like things would would never be the same again. And in, in many ways, they haven't been. And like we would never be able to fight against big money in politics and stuff like this really does give me uh, give me a, a small amount of hope uh, that um grassroots campaigns can still uh can still outrun big money yes and i mean you know she is uh beloved in seattle um and uh we are always happy to see someone um disappoint jeff bezos uh especially if it's a a socialist woman of color hell yeah yeah. this isn't this also is not the first time that uh jeff bezos and amazon have been defeated you may remember um that they were not able to move to queens uh after all, um, or no, not not able, but they pulled out because of the opposition. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is there is hope um, to some degree or another. Um, yeah. And that was exclusively like a grassroots uh, movement. Yeah. Um, another thing, though, that is not so good. Um, Planned Parenthood is now fighting to keep Missouri's very last abortion clinic open. Um, the uh, health department of Missouri um, has said that uh, this Planned Parenthood um, has not abided by regulations. There's a really weird story that this um, the the state investigators have been compiling a spreadsheet of the dates of women's last menstrual periods, which is very Handmaid's Tale. A bunch of protesters were actually dressed up in the Handmaid's Tale thing, which is like kind of not a thing I stand anymore. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say that. I, I don't usually like it, but actually in this case, I think it it works yeah it does work and it is it is like i mean with the period tracking and stuff that is so straight up handmade yeah i guess i just don't like it because i feel like that show is like so weirdly racist i i stopped watching after the first season also it's very upsetting to watch it's very upsetting it's like it's we live in trump's america we don't need to see that um But yeah, I mean, this is so Missouri is one of a number of states now that only has one um, abortion provider. Yeah. And Ohio is, I think, fighting to um, keep their last abortion clinic open too. or no Dayton 
I don't know. I actually don't know. Um, Kate, I'm glad that you brought this up because it's just, you know, it's something that I I definitely don't see enough of. I, I don't see like a lot of mainstream new, news coverage about the little losses like this that are really big losses for the people who live in those states, but just things that like don't really register on the national on the national scale. And I think I, I really wish that people knew that lack of access to reproductive care and um, lack of access to abortion is like a full crisis in states like Missouri, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. Texas only has a few for a state that has tens of millions of people. I certainly take it for granted um, because I've only ever lived in places where it's been very accessible to me. Um, but solidarity with uh, with everyone who's doing doing the work out there and on, on the ground it's, it's really horrifying like it just really does horrify me to think that um you know roe versus wade has, has all been has all but been overturned in states like this yeah absolutely the last abortion provider in the dayton ohio area the women's med center is also trying to avoid closure after the ohio department of health revoked its license for failing to meet strict regulations so you know the yeah. governments in these conservative states are um they impose these like super yeah, rest- restrictive laws trap yeah. laws you know the the republican legislators who make these laws are not dumb they know basically exactly how to write the laws um, so that they can close as many abortion clinics as possible. And um, it makes me really fucking sad. <laughs> a lot of these states have very high rates of teen pregnancy and poverty. The idea of having to drive six hours, take a whole day off of work or something is just something a lot of wage working women can't do. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier, too, in relation to like voting day. Uh, mm. just we had an election this past Tuesday and like especially for these small elections I think it is really hard for people to get time off work to do it you totally know? like I, I think like more people will ask for a time off for like a presidential election and like they have to give you they have to give you time legally, yeah. of course, but, you know, like also like nobody who enforces that. Yeah, no, yeah. Who enforces it? Nobody wants to be like a pest at work. Like we talked about this later in the episode with unions, but it's like just because there's like an official policy, it doesn't mean that like your employer is not going to be a dick to you about it. So, yeah. And like I'm I'm lucky enough where I can like walk to my polling place um so, wow brag i know brag Mine, no mine's right down the street <laughs> but it's like you know say say you like you get a ride to work or something like that you can't ask them hey can you like stop at my point like there's just so many extra considerations to be made to have an abortion or to vote um many would say the same all right so uh yeah to vote for your baby <laughs> i'm just joking that was an offensive joke um <laughs> Should we do our recommendation? Yeah, let's do our recommendation. Okay. What is your recommendation, Julia? My recommendation this week is the Trailbillies Worker Party podcast. Oh fuck, we love the Trailbillies. We love the Trailbillies. Um What do you say we stand? We I would I would go so far. Um yeah. yeah, so the as a lot of you know, it made national news. Um Kentucky now has or, you know, uh, Matt Bevan, the Republican incumbent has not conceded, but they it looks like they're going to have a Democratic governor. Uh, Annie Bashir and um, the mainstream news coverage of it I found to be kind of uh, incomplete. Um, but the last two episodes of the Trailbillies um, have been about the gubernatorial race um, from 
Tom and Terrence's perspective and uh, people living in, as people living in Kentucky. And I just think it's like a really invaluable dose of cold water on the, um, <laughs> the, the kind of narrative that, uh, that the daily tried to spin on it, which was that it was just like a referendum on impeachment. <laughs> so stupid i mean stupid that that is the way that the daily presented it um i have a recommendation this week which is another podcast i guess this is the theme of uh of our recommendations this week so still listen to these podcasts but still keep listening to reply guys yeah too don't um don't split your loyalty yeah you're loyal I, to us i want to recommend a podcast called citations needed um it's a really great podcast it's um, hosted by nima shirazi and adam johnson who are both like amazing media critics and uh the reason i thought of it this week um in particular was because uh bill gates said some really stupid shit about how he um did not want to uh, be taxed a hundred billion dollars and they had a really good episode kind of deconstructing uh the way that these billionaires um kind of present themselves as philanthropists but it's really kind of all about uh their own political agenda which in the case of bill gates is a lot about charter schools um and uh, policies um that i just kind of yeah that that are very much in line with his particular ideology without ever having been democratically elected and why philanthropy as like a, a model for helping people is so much so worse wrong. than just straight up taxing people and redistributing the wealth. Um, so that's really good. They had a really good episode recently on why uh, politicians using the term middle class again and again is so stupid and actually kind of obscures class struggle and inequality. Um, and yeah, I just, I really love this podcast and um, Nima Shirazi in particular has the best angry voice that I've ever heard <laughs> when he talks about um, shady billionaires. He does so with this level of like true contempt that I, we stand. I stand it. I got to be honest. I got to listen. I You've been recommending it to me for a while. A bunch of people have recommended it to me and it's, I listen to so many, I listen to so many podcasts. It's just getting to be too much. I can't read books anymore. I know it's yeah. Also, I I did I talked to you about this earlier that somebody said this on Twitter that like a few decades ago, Bill Gates, quote unquote, retired to start giving away his money full time. Yeah. And he is worth more now than he was then. (laughs) So how's that going, Bill? How is uh, giving away your money going? Because you have more of it now. Bill Gates sucks. Uh, Jeff Bezos sucks. Um that's yeah, all you, like that's him. all you need to know we don't like him oh and then there was that one guy there was also that uh radio host this week who he was like a strong backup for reply of the week who compared um the term okay boomer to oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The n-word my mom this week she sent me uh a, a, a meme about threesomes i guess because <laughs> she thought that it was like re- relatable to my uh stand-up and i i just reposted the meme and her text from me on, on Twitter, and I said, uh, okay, Boomer. And I guess she saw it because she texted me about it. She said, Boomer. Does she follow you on t- She follows you on Twitter? No, I think someone probably told her that I did that. Oh, who- Which, whatever, I reply got my own mom. What kind of daughter am I? Kind of but someone I- tag snitched you to your mom. Yeah, someone tag snitched <laughs> me to my mom. Um, but, like, also, who wants to hear a threesome joke from their mom? It was very boomer. That's not the main problem I have with boomers. It's not the threesome jokes. The main problem I have uh, with boomers is uh, that they do not understand the economical, uh, the economic struggle of the generations that came after them. And they uh, are operating, in many cases, from the assumption that 
we have the same set of conditions and options that they did yeah. when it is in fact not true it's so, not true boomer is not a slur it's certainly not equivalent to a, a racial slur it's that it's like that that john mulaney bit where it's like if you're comparing the the badness of two words and you won't even say one of the words that's the worst word <laughs> yes absolutely um all right so we have an amazing episode for you this week um we talked to nato green who is an old friend of mine from san francisco he's a comedian and a union organizer and we had a really great conversation about uh unions um kind of the basics of what unions do how to organize them and then um towards the end we got into some of the really interesting things that are happening in san francisco politics right now it's a really great conversation yeah it's really cool we think you'll really enjoy it thank you so thanks. much hello and welcome back to reply guys we are here with my friend nato green on zoom from san francisco uh NATO is a union organizer and a comedian and a writer and a landlord of the good variety, which you don't see that much, but you do truly love to see it. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, NATO. Good morning, bros. <laughs> yeah, we are, this is a, yeah, we are leftist bros now. What's sorry. Up? Yeah. <laughs> we started this because we just we felt like we weren't seeing enough people um there was not enough bro representation yeah, in, the, were in not, the leftist space there were not enough women doing sexism for bernie so <laughs> we needed to do it yeah. it's the only way you can win let's get the let's get the well actually is coming fast and furious <laughs> <laughs> um well this is so cool we've actually we've talked a lot about unions um on our podcast before we had and on our, our labor day episode we had an entire um show dedicated to unions and especially uh, some of the the big union victories of the past few years that have gained a lot of national attention, particularly the teachers uh, strikes in Arizona, West Virginia and Los Angeles. And it must be so interesting for you being a labor organizer in the Bay Area because and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I it seems like the climate out there created by tech companies is vehemently opposed to unions correct i mean yes yes you know it's like the bay area is so weird because on the one hand it's like everybody is you know for the most part like pro-choice and pro-gay marriage and like a lot of things that have you know his for decades defined the left and right political spectrum on the other hand we have had people like peter thiel who Mm. you know and like these tech companies building facial recognition software for the border patrol and stuff um so as well as uh you know plundering the public coffers and wanting to deregulate everything um that so much of disruption is like uh deregulation but (laughs) um and you know cutting cutting standards but it's been you know it's been an interesting it's interesting to organize in that environment because the inequalities are so stark and the need is so desperate like san francisco has the highest number of billionaires per capita i think in the certainly in the country um and they're all polyamorous 100 percent. right and they're all (laughs) and they're all polyamorous and we also have eight thousand people living on the streets yeah so um, and there, and San Francisco's seven square miles. So it's not like that's spread, you know, spread apart by some huge amount of space. Like the emergency department at SF General Hospital, which is basically where every form of social crisis gets dumped, is literally walking distance from Mark Zuckerberg's house. Mm. 
and it's it's there's a different conversation for places that have been systematically disinvested from but in san francisco and in the bay area in general like working people like you know we don't have enough resources to do our job as public school teachers or as emergency room nurses or what have you and the money is liter is like right over there like i can see it from here you know um so it 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 creates a level of ur urgency about about and a and a starkness of the choices around organizing that makes it really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much there. I want to get back to the housing crisis in San Francisco in a few minutes, but I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background about your work as a union organizer and also an overview of what is involved in unionizing a workplace. How do people do that? Sure. So, um, uh, I'm about to commit a sin for anyone affiliated with entertainment, but I'm, I have to say my age, um, uh, which is I'm, I'm 44. And so you have to talk about when things were happening. So I started organizing unions when I was 22. Um, and I got out of college and in, this is in 97, I graduated from college. And in 1995 was the first contested election for the AFL-CIO president. And a guy named John Sweeney was elected president. And there was like a lot of excitement in the late 90s um, uh, around sort of a revitalized labor movement and unions investing and organizing and all this kind of stuff that they were trying to figure out at that time. And so a, a lot of people like me in my generation, um, people coming out of uh, like, you know, campus anti-sweatshop organizing and campus living wage organizing and often like divestment from South African apartheid um, on, on college campuses went into the labor movement in the in the and, you know, and, and also in the with the WTO protests in 1999 were like incredibly defining for my generation. And so there was just like a lot of people my age who moved, moved into the labor movement um uh in the late 90s and early 2000s and so i wanted to organize people who were like me um and no one was doing it no one was organizing 22 year olds um and so uh i got i, I got a job at a bagel shop and organized a union there um and then i got fired and then um and then i got a job as a car messenger and I worked as a driver for two and a half years and organized a biking car messengers union. Um, and we won our union contract and we had, you know, the, it was, it was a citywide organizing effort. So we organized a bunch of messenger companies, uh, you know, Kate, I imagine these are people that you might have wanted to date at some point. Yeah. Like a lot you know, I, I have organized a lot of 22 year olds, but mostly, for romantic reasons, yeah. <laughs> right. But, you know, we, we like, because then, anyway, we did a lot of messenger organizing or, and ha had a lot of strikes. And um, and then I raised a bunch of foundation money and started the country's first worker center for young and immigrant workers in the low-wage service sector, which an organization called Young Workers United that still exists. And um, we did a bunch, we worked, passed the first local minimum wage law in San Francisco in 2003 that was it sort of in some ways like the you know the the forerunner of what became the fight for 15 mm -hmm. uh nationally and then <clears throat> did a bunch of stuff to organize around the implementation of it so like that was sort of the idea was 
we would raise the minimum wage and then go out and talk to workers about how to assert their rights under the law um, and then ended up doing like organizing around wage and hour violations in restaurants and getting millions of dollars won back for restaurant workers from wage theft. Um, and then I went to work for the California Nurses Association um, and spent many years there uh, working with nurses and negotiating contracts. And um, we built a big labor community coalition uh, uh, in San Francisco that we stopped a $2 billion hospital development project for about a decade until they agreed to a nationally unprecedented set of community benefits. Fuck yeah. You know, when you are seen as the face of holding up a $2 billion development project, people go insane. And so uh, it's a point of pride that the Episcopal Archbishop of California called me the Antichrist. He, you uh, personally? Me personally. Oh my yeah. God. We never thought we would get to have the Antichrist as a guest on the show. Uh, thank you so much yeah. for being here. It's really incredible. And also, you know, I thought Episcopalians were more chill than that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he said it in a very friendly way. Like you know, it was, it was, he said it in the in the most chill way possible that you could call someone the Antichrist. Sure. Um, uh, but still. And then I took a couple of years and did comedy full time, and moved to New York and wrote wrote on Kamau's first television show. Um, and then you know, I got called back. I got called back to the struggle, man. Um, and for the last several years, I've been working for uh, SEIU. Um, mostly a local government union, but I've also been involved in a bunch of uh, organizing of adjunct professors um, and uh, nonprofit workers. Um, Sorry, can you just, can like you, um, can you spell out that initialism that you mentioned? Oh, SEIU is the Service Employees International Union. Okay. Um, where uh, SEIU is one of the biggest unions in the country. SEIU sort of covers broadly like three different jurisdictions as they say like there's a big portion of seiu that is public sector workers um and so the part that i deal with is local governments like cities and counties mm -hmm. uh and school districts and things like that there's a part of seiu that is healthcare, so there's a lot of hospital workers and nursing home workers and home care workers and things like that and then there's a part of seiu that is called building services which is janitors and security guards um so uh, the the local that I work for covers all it, all of Northern California. Wow. So if someone <clears throat> is thinking about unionizing their workplace, how could someone get started if they wanted to unionize their workplace for the first time? There's the legal answer and then there's the real answer. Give um, us both. <laughs> but especially okay. the illegal the, one. <laughs> I'm just joking. Okay. So the legal answer is that the the American system of labor law is was invent d d goes back to the 1930s and the Great Depression, and the the entire legal framework was rooted in that political economy and was um, as we might have as we said in certain kinds of study groups that I was in as a younger person that of uh communist nature um what oh no uh, no i'm just kidding <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, this is actually a, you know, a, the, a mccarthy the, era podcast yeah <laughs> yeah the the uh, like our whole labor law system was was developed to depoliticize class struggle uh it was de designed to get working people like so that to move move class conflict from 
direct confrontation in the streets and on factory floors into like a lot of paper pushing and bureaucracy. Um, so uh, the legal answer is that, um, you know, if if that if 30 percent or more of workers in a given workplace sign union authorization cards, they can petition the National Labor Relations Board, which is a federal agency under the Department of Labor to hold an hold an election and then if, if a majority of those workers uh, of workers voting vote to unionize uh, the union is recognized in that workplace and the employer has a legal obligation to bargain in good faith to uh collectively with those workers over the terms and conditions of employment um to reach a union contract um so if you the, so the first question the real answer is the first question in union organizing is um, is there an existing union that would organize those workers right like um, if you uh, if you work in a non-union hotel there is a hotel union that organizes hotel workers and so you you know and that's all and that's all they do is they organize hotel workers so. You go talk to them. Uh, and, um, you know, if you work at a non-union hospital, there's a lot of organizing in the healthcare field. So that path in some ways is pretty straightforward. Um, the problem, the bigger problem, and to me the interesting problem that, like, I have, this is why I started a worker center for young workers in the first place, is that... Um, Many, many, I would probably most working people work in jobs where there's no union currently trying to organize those workers. And then what do you do? Um, and part of what is exciting to me about what's happening now is that there is a way, there's a level of enthusiasm, you know, uh, because of the level sort of in the po what I think of as the post Occupy Wall Street era among. Uh, like new generations of people to organize you you know we've had the fight for 15 we've had the teacher stuff um where people are are in the position of having to invent new forms of organizing that meet the conditions of their workplaces where there's no union uh historically to talk to them so like there's been this wave of organizing in new in digital media uh as like workers at fast company and the onion and um all these like digital news sites are organizing I, you know, when I started in the labor movement 20 plus years ago, like people were swearing up and down that those workers were unorganizable, um, you know, and there are all these Google workers, tech workers doing, holding walkouts and, you know, connecting online and organizing themselves and walking out with very different kinds of demands. Like, um, you know, there are all these tech workers w walking out over, uh, protest of their companies being involved in creating software for ICE, um, or uh, uh, tech workers walking out over their company's policies around dealing dealing with sexual harassment. So, um, you know, part of uh, the 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 way that I was trained as an organizer, there's this like legendary uh, veteran old union organizer named Peter Olney, who's one of the people who trained me, um, and you know, he, the thing that he said is, uh, what, 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 
Marxism means is what is the form of organization that meets the needs of the working class? That's that's our question. Part of the 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 exciting opportunity and the challenge is that workers that because in the last two years have seen the most workers on strike in the United States than at any point since 1984, I want to say, um, that it turns out that solidarity is contagious and people are inspired and and taking action and then are inventing new forms of organizing uh, and new forms of worker organization and worker struggle that were unimaginable even 10 years ago. And also public support for unions is at its highest point um, in maybe the last 30 years. Yeah. Pu- public support is, is, is really high. And, um, uh, part, you know, part of the story of that is there was in 2012, there was a Chicago teacher strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you remember the timing of it, but, you know, Rahm Emanuel, who had worked for Obama, was the mayor of Chicago because of the struggle, the structure of the Chicago school district. The district is under the control of the mayor pretty directly. Like a lot of school districts, it's sort of there's the school board and the superintendent that's separate from the city government structure. But in Chicago, the mayor controls the school district. Rahm Emanuel was Obama's guy. It's during and after the two. It was like right before the 2012 election with Mitt Romney. And the Chicago teachers walked out against Obama's guy in Obama's hometown. And there are all these people across the country who are like, this is bad timing. They shouldn't do it. You're going to hurt Obama's reelection chances. And it was this union that was led by this incredible black woman, Karen Lewis, that was they were on strike over um, uh, privatization of public schools and closures of schools in black and brown communities. And they had massive public support in Chicago and they won. Um, and I cannot tell you what an earthquake that was in the labor movement. Mm. Like, um, everyone, like all over the country since then, the, the term that has sort of coalesced around that concept in the labor movement is bargaining for the common good. Um, that, that union organizers across the country have, have been exploring this model of applying, uh, using the power of the union to fight for things that don't just benefit our members, but benefit the the people that we serve and our communities. And that when we do that, not, not only do we benefit our communities, but we actually also get better contracts just on like in contract terms as well. Um, and so there's been this big process of transformation to unions taking that stuff on and it, uh, it, it is working. <laughs> right. One thing that, um, we have talked about on the show before um, our right to work laws. And I was wondering to what extent um, you think that right to work laws are or will in the future threaten the ability of workers to organize? Where do we kind of stand with that at the moment? Yeah. So historically, um, the right to work laws were concentrated in the South. And um, there's a there's a, a a pretty strong racial justice component. Like the data is very powerful about what unions mean for people of color in terms of reducing the wealth gap. Mm. Uh, like unions unions are that they're like there's a stereotype about unions that the typical union member is a like a burly white guy in Michigan or whatever working in a factory um you know people talk about plumber joe or that, like that kind of st- that that's joe kind the of the plumber. stereotype of what unions but but that's statistically that's not true anymore what 
what union what the typical union member is is a woman of color in california yeah um not a burly white guy in, in michigan and right to work laws were um uh developed primarily to assist in the disenfranchisement of black people in the south um and it's not i, I believe that part of the untold story you know that one of one of the as uh overlooked stories of the trump elections is right to work that um like as you know of course yes like hillary was the worst and jill stein is also the worst and the russians are also the worst and everybody else is the worst but um you know trump won because of michigan and wisconsin and pennsylvania uh and in you know it's not an accident that in the last between the last between the last contested election with no incumbent in 2000 from 2008 to 2016 wisconsin scott walker passed the laws in wisconsin to break the public sector unions and then wisconsin became a red state um that that the in wisconsin i've seen that i've seen the polling the non-college educated white households that are union households vote 60 40 for democrats and if they are non-union households they vote 60 40 for republicans um and there is your margin of victory for donald trump in wisconsin um there was a similar type of policy in, in Michigan. Uh, uh, the, there was a some a bunch of anti anti union policies that were passed in Michigan in the last few few years preceding twenty sixteen that were intended to break the unions. So, um, but I don't think it's all bad actually. Um, just in the last couple of years, the Supreme Court came out with the Janus decision. So the the Janus decision was. Uh, addressed specifically at the public sector and was intended to make public to basically bring right to work to public sector unions nationwide. And so really like quickly, a I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but if anybody is unfamiliar with what right to work is, can you define it really quickly just for the purposes? Yeah. So, I mean, right to, right to work uh, is, is really about de preventing unions from having money mm -hmm. is what it boils down to unions both struggle with their you know make things better for working people in their jobs and unions also um mobile turnout voters who vote disproportionately for democrats and the right wing hates it and so right to work has been a key strategy that they've deployed to defund unions uh and that if unions are defunded then they've essentially defunded the entire american left um and so uh, what right to work means is that you as a if you are in a union, you cannot be required to pay dues to your union. Mm -hmm. um, what is weird about that is that under federal law, if you are in a union, your union is legally obligated to provide you with representation. So it is perhaps uh, the only example besides emergency departments where there is an, an entity that is required to provide a service whether people pay for it or not the right-wing theory of right to work is that is to incentivize free riders that if people that they say you know you have to pay x amount of dollars per month for union dues wouldn't you rather have that money for something else they still have to rep represent you why don't you resign your membership um 
uh, or, you know, your union is so left wing and radical. Is that really your values? Why don't you opt out of your union uh, and stop paying dues to support this radical agenda that you don't agree with? Uh, that's what right to work is. The Janus decision was a Supreme Court case that um, brought right to work nationwide to the public sector and was intended to be the death sentence for the labor movement. And this is why I'm not that worried about it, is that it turned, it didn't happen. Not only did they change the law, but then these right-wing foundations, uh, like called like the Freedom Foundation, actually sent organizers out to workplaces across the country and did direct mailing and outreach to um, public sector union members to get them to drop their union membership and people haven't done it. It's been in a very small number so far. Now, uh, you mentioned that um, that a lot of this organizing happened in the wake of the Occupy movement. Do you think that that is a result of the Occupy movement being so disorganized? I think that that's, that's, how, that's how movements work, you know, is like, I don't think it's the Occupy, I mean, the Occupy movement was disorganized, sort of, but was also like, it also changed public opinion, um, you know, that uh, before September 17th, 2011, the conversation about the deficit and public debt and the needing to cut the budget was dominating American politics. And like, it was almost overnight that public, public opinion flipped and the national narrative shifted to talking about inequality. And that there is a, you know, post-Occupy, there is a level of uh, skepticism about corporate power, about capitalism, about about wealth in general, uh, a level of indignation about inequality. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think, I think it's, it's this, it's, there's this un- unpredictable stuff about how movements work, um, where, you know, um, Occupy started in 2011. It was there was not any particular plan. Um, there had been, I don't know, two or three other attempts to like have similar types of initiatives prior to that. Like there were other types of big encampments or marches or things that people had launched that were trying to address the same problems. And there's no way to tell. Like there's no, you know, you you could never understand why exactly it comes together the way that it does when it like the thing that takes off and sparks the, the, the up upsurge of activity, but Occupy did. And it's, it's spread all over the country. Like, uh, you know, I will, uh, I'm, I don't love the formulation of the sentence that I'm about to say, but, um, uh, because it involves Twitter, but it's such a powerful memory of sitting there that the, one night in in September 2011, watching the Twitter feed as the when the moment that Occupy spread. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that, but there was there was a day where Occupy spread from New York across the country, and you could just I was sitting there on Twitter watching people declare of like Occupy Denver meet at this place in the morning, Occupy New Orleans meet at this place in the morning as it swept the whole country. Uh, and 
And, you know, a lot of it was a mess and there were huge contradictions and it was ideologically incoherent and there wasn't organization and it wasn't sustainable. Um, and the winter came and the cops beat them up um, and they, you know, somewhat became like groovy homeless encampments yeah. um, <laughs> with, with with drum circles and lentils, you know. Um, hey, you know... But- Look, in this conversation, you have knocked Twitter, drum circles, and lentils, and NATO. I, these are important. We don't, we don't have anything life. else. We yeah. don't have anything else left. Yeah, but go finish your sentence, please. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and dudes with septum rings. Oh Sorry, my god! Did I go too far? No. No, it's all right. Look, I'm changing my ways. Uh, so. You know, like it was a mess in all those ways. And yet, you know, I mean, sort of like and you see this in movement after movement that there's a surge of activity. Some people get who are who were already participating in something, get radicalized to a, a higher degree. Some people get brought into stuff that weren't involved before. And then at some point, the wave recedes. And really, the major question is, what happens after that? Like how many of those people stay involved after the wave recedes? Yeah. And, and what is the enduring effect? Like, I mean, here's, here's a, my favorite example of an upsurge of activity that produced nothing as far as I'm concerned was the Ralph Nader campaign in 2000. Like Ralph Nader was filling Madison square garden and whatnot, uh, with these rallies and then, and nothing came out of it. Um, uh, I'm sure I'm going to get some angry tweets from Reply Guys uh, <laughs> fans about this. But, um, uh, but you know, Occupy was not that. I, like, some of the ways that Occupy changed public opinion stuck. And so a lot of the organization and the culture and the ideas, the narrative around the 99%, um, just so much of that uh, lasted and continued to work um, and continued to have unexpected uh aftershocks in many movements all over the country um in ways that are hard to see that it, that and are and are continuing to have an effect and you can you know with all this stuff you can sort of keep going back like there's some stuff you know some people say like well occupy but then you're going back to you know the arab spring uh, but then you know and then there's other parts of that that go back to you know what we were doing with the wto in 99 and there's always there's always you know uh history is continuous um and i think part of i i feel like my biggest job as a as an organizer is to help people understand how change occurs Mm -hmm. because a lot of times what happens with people around their participation in social change is they like you know show up at one protest and the system doesn't collapse and then they get disappointed and they're like, it didn't work. I'm going back to gaming or whatever. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so partly it's like, there's stuff that we 100% know is happening that, that it happens because that's how change works, but it's not necessarily visible unless you happen to be right there when it happens. Um, and it's not necessarily part of the story later. Um, and so there's a level of you just like as you participate, you have to know that your oppressors aren't going to tell you the things that you need to know to liberate yourself, that that your oppressors aren't going to say, you know, if you if you stay on strike for one day longer, we are going to give up. You know, we can stand a strike that's eight days, but not a strike that's 10 days like they don't say that. And so 
this is uh, you know an, a, a, another uh, organizer that I worked with who passed away this year said um, we were going on strike uh, and it happened to be around the time of Passover and he was Jewish and he said Moses had to step into the Red Sea to make the water part. Um, uh, it wasn't magic. It wasn't the, the road was open, you know, uh, that, that, that the, that the act was what created the way forward. Um, and that that is always true and you, and you can't see it and you can't, you, you, it doesn't feel like it's something that's true. It feels like insanity until you do it and you can have the, the, the experience and the feeling of what it feels like to go through that. And then you remember hopefully next time you go through the thing and you're like oh this is the part where it feels like nothing's happening and we're losing but we need to keep pushing because we never know how close we are to to victory right can we switch gears for just a moment here to san francisco politics so i have uh some questions for you about that uh i lived in san francisco for a long time that's how we know each other um we had a big week in san francisco this week Oh yeah, tell us what happened. Well, there were uh, we had a, so we had elections on Tuesday, and lo- local elections, and um, uh, we elected a Democratic Socialist to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Amazing. Uh, uh, a so I it's we, we we are speaking now on Sunday morning. It was yesterday at Saturday. The election was Tuesday. Yesterday, Saturday at four o'clock was when the late counted voter voting returns put us over the top. Um, Hell yeah! Uh, by like two hundred votes or something. Um, so yeah, Democratic Socialist tenant lawyer uh, challenged a mayoral appointee. He was like buried in attack mail by the real estate lobby, and uh, and he won for the board of supervisors. And what in some ways maybe more nationally significant is that we also elected a district attorney who um it was running as a you know on a like how about we stop killing black people um like prison reform reduce mass incarceration platform his name is chesa his name is chesa boudin and he just had, he has an incredible personal story uh, he grew up with both of his parents in jail. Hmm. Um, his parents were part part of the Weather Underground uh, oh, in wow. the '60s and and '70s, and they were in jail through his entire childhood. And so, um, uh, and so, you know, he he and his dad is still in jail. Like while they were counting on Tuesday, the was election day, and while they were counting the election results, he flew back to New York to visit his dad in jail, um, and. Uh, the idea that the people who have been that anyone who has been a victim of the system of mass incarceration is in a position uh, like a of power to end it is incredible um and the police officers union in san francisco spent seven hundred thousand dollars to to try to slander him and destroy him and and failed um and, uh, you know, and we're saying that he's, you know, coddles criminals and soft on crime. Uh, what has been amazing si- since four o'clock yesterday is watching tech bro Twitter have a complete meltdown. Why? Uh, Why are they melting down about this? <laughs> oh, it's like, you know, that there's I let me I have to 
to show you some of the stuff it's incredible you know san francisco has like these homeless homelessness problems there's a lot of people on the streets as a result of all the poverty and inequality there's a you know not insignificant amount of like car break-ins and you know people have like dummies have amazon prime deliver flat screen tvs and leave them on their doorstep and then someone steals them you know what i mean like that happens in san francisco and so techie twitter is just going off complaining about like you know congratulations san francisco get used to the property crime so this is my favorite one uh this guy just tweeted this morning uh or last night san francisco has a number of very fit technically brilliant billionaires it has a crime and safety problem and it elects politicians that exacerbate this problem if any place was going to create batman it's san francisco (laughs) oh boy uh and, you know, they're saying, oh, now now we can go commit some light property crimes. There was another guy pitching a startup to break into people's cars. Um, what an idiot. Yeah. So it's very like it's, you know, it's just it's it's sort of the like, you know, next door, like Facebook for racist concern controls. Like it's just like the next door crowd who are think that the worst thing that could happen is uh having a package stolen off their front steps instead of the violence of poverty. Um, yeah. And, and I think people don't understand like that the highest density of billionaires coinciding with one of the highest densities of homelessness is not a coincidence. It's one cannot exist without the other in late capitalism. I don't know. Um, San Francisco to me, just seems like a, 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 a real case study for that. Is it, would you call it a dystopian hellscape? I I, I think say, I have. I think I have on on a few occasions. <laughs> no. I mean, it's it to me. It's like it's so strange because I feel like the San Francisco that I know and love that is very progressive. Um, I mean, I like I moved there uh, shortly before the Iraq War started, and you know the the anti war movement there was so vibrant and. Um, you know, there's just a really great history and tradition of leftist movements, but it, there's also just this like real kind of shitty uh, libertarian thread, um, like a lot of uh, bros who love Ayn Rand, not just for the creepy rape sex scenes, um, but also <laughs> for the politics, both of which are upsetting, you know, and it's like uh, some of the some of the kind of like shittiest Democratic figures uh, come out of San Francisco. We do not stand Kamala on this podcast. We don't. Um, and, you know, we are uh, I think we're truly disappointed in Nancy Pelosi lately. Um, her comments about uh, Medicare for all, among other things, have been uh, very for someone who keeps bra- Yeah. For someone who keeps bragging about how she has signs for Medicare for all in her basement. Yeah. Come on, Nancy. Yeah. I mean, I guess like what would it take for, let's say, Nancy Pelosi to be unseated in san francisco is that ever a possibility or is it too is it too libertarian there now or old money too well i I mean so there's been some belief that san francisco politics have moved to the right because of all the text money and um i have never bought that like as a san francisco native i feel like the story that san francisco that the san francisco i know and love is dying has literally been around since the gold rush like that's that is the story of san francisco is is 
people complaining that the new people are ruining it. And I also think that like the that San Francisco has never been what people thought it was. Like that the you know there's always been that kind of counterculture and and forward thinking kind of stuff that you're talking about, Kate. But like you know Dan White, the guy who killed Harvey Milk was a San Francisco native and a Irish cop. You know, there has always been a a, a more not not like right wing, but certainly conservative tendency within San Francisco politics. I mean, you know, we just the there there was a uncontested mayor's race basically, you know, on Tuesday and our current mayor uh London Breed who is supported by tech, you know tech and the and where all the co- corporate money is ran for re-election and she only had some minor challengers but her most notable challenge was like a a extreme racist trump supporting chinese lady who g- still got 15,000 votes um jesus and you know that 15,000 votes is a not insignificant number of votes um it's more uh, than mayor to, pete you know, has ever had in his life almost twice as yeah, many right. yes i mean dan, dan white was uh, also a he was uh, cu- you know culturally quite conservative uh i like the conservatism that i think of as um r- highly represented in san francisco now seems to be a more neoliberal uh socially liberal fiscally conservative yeah i mean but you know it's like let, I mean, let me put it this way uh uh, you know, I've been following and involved in San Francisco politics since the late 90s. And every election, I look at the voting maps and basically the voting map d- doesn't change that the neighborhoods that vote, you know, that vote one way, like who that vote more progressive versus more conservative is the same as it was 20 years ago. Um, so whatever else is happening, there's some like, see, there seem to be some enduring truths in the city. Um, the. You know, there seems to be like, and so what that means is, you know, San Francisco is a, is a, will, is an like 80, 20, you know, will vote for the Democrats. Um, and, uh, and so like, there's no question of, of any, of a Republican winning. The question is whether, uh, Pelosi could be challenged from the left and, um, and there is a challenger. There, there are two challengers from the left this time. Um, uh, my hope is that the two of them can agree and one of them drop out. There's a guy named Shahid Batar and a guy named Tom Gallagher. Um, uh, and, you know, they're both nice guys and they have good platforms. I think Shahid is probably a stronger candidate. Um, uh, but there's also like enough sort of, you know, Kamala Harris type Democrats in San Francisco who are going to be happy with Nancy Pelosi that, um, uh, you know, that people will, that people will continue to vote for her as long as she keeps running. Um, you know, frankly, at this point, like, because, you know, as soon as Pelosi got out front of the impeachment thing, I was like, oh man, she's going to get reelected. What I'm more worried about is that she like immediately tries to anoint her daughter to be the successor of the dynasty. Mm. Um, and so the the progressives are doing what we can to avoid that right now um, about what whatever happens after Pelosi in the next in the next election. Um, it, 
after in late 2016 you know you i'm sure you have uh ptsd memories of this after trump was elected um and before the women's march there was like that very bleak period where everyone was like we were all crying all the time yes um and heard of it (laughs) uh some 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 friends of mine and i we were just like we need to do something and it was like we had we thought that the democrats were just going to cave completely on everything and um and so we were like we have to do something and so i got a group of people together and we delivered a seven foot styrofoam spine to pelosi's office (laughs) i loved Um, that i remember when you did that so cool uh and i have heard that people in her office still hate me um because we got a bunch of press on it of like, you know, let's 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 deliver a backbone to Pelosi so that she can stand up to Trump. Um, and, it, you know, I will say that it worked uh, that she's she has been better than I was afraid she was going to be. But she's still awful. Um, and, uh, you know, if you spend any amount of time with, say, undocumented immigrants or un people who are undocumented immigrants who are organizing around the dream act for example um the like the the dreamers who engaged in direct action to pressure obama um around uh, around immigration or the dreamers who protested joe biden about his involvement in creating the deportation apparatus those people have nothing good to say about pelosi yeah I think we should probably wrap up here. Uh, we are reaching the end of our time. Um, is there anything else that you we didn't ask you about that you wanted to say or let our listeners know about? Buy my album. Okay, buy NATO's album. Hell yeah. Um, no, it's very good. I've heard it. It's super funny. Uh, where can our listeners it's find cool. you, NATO? Uh, my album is called The Whiteness Album. It's it's uh, available wherever comedy can be streamed and downloaded. I'm at Nato Green on Twitter, Mr. Nato Green on Instagram, natogreen.com. There's a great deal of Nato Green related content out there for you to enjoy. <laughs> awesome, Nato. Thank you so much. This was really fun and it was great to talk to you. And I'll see you in the dystopian hellscape soon. Yeah. Peace out. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, which is O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can also find our Reply Guys. They are always with us.